This is a standalone extension. Part one of two, we're going to unpack this amazing chapter that Luke Penn's called Acts 20. Why do I say stand um, alone? Because there's no message that this is connected to. Typically, I'd preach a sermon. Then I, That's why it's called an extension. It's an extension of that sermon. But this doesn't have one. It is going to be two parts now since I didn't preach a sermon to break it all down because there's so much in this amazing chapter and it's gonna be sandwiched in between the message souls and scrolls and the extension a beautiful beginning which that's all out of Acts 19 and then the message the gates were shut and the extension journey to Jerusalem which is Acts 21 so here we are Acts 20 with it all in the middle one thing I would say one aspect of the message the gates were shut that I think could be tremendously helpful for this extension are the maps that I use at the beginning of that. If you just watch like the first two minutes of the gates were shut, that will help you so much to watch Paul's journey through Acts 20 and to kind of see where we're headed. All the different stops that he made throughout the chapter. And uh, for the sake of this extension, that goes all the way to Miletus, but we're only going to go as far as Troas. By verse six, uh, we're going to be in Troas and we're going to break down a little bit past that in this extension, but we're going to end for this one in Troas. So that's as far as you need to go, like the first two minutes of the gates were shut. Check out that map. But Acts 20, it really picks up after quite a phenomenon that uh, Paul just had to endure. Well, he had to endure so many. So I guess to say that Acts 19 in Ephesus, where the riot takes place, how does it actually say it? It says the riot in Ephesus. That's how it says it. A mob rises up, wants to kill him as usual. So I guess he had to endure that a lot. But he's coming off of that. So here we are, Acts 20, verse 1. It says, when the uproar had ended, he's like, okay, whew, we got through another one. Lord, we're alive. Let's keep doing your work. Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye, and then set out, the Bible says, for Macedonia. Now, I'm going to give you this, like, since it's an extension, and I'm not just preaching a typical message, I can give you all the little extra stuff, right? This is not in the book of Acts, but you have to understand, this is all transpiring in the book of Acts, whether it's listed there or not, but while Paul is traveling, it says here, right, he set out for Macedonia. While he's traveling through Macedonia, he makes a stop that he only mentions in the book of Romans. When he writes his letter to the church there in Rome, he says in Acts, uh, sorry, Romans, every, every book for me at this point is Acts. He says in Romans chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except for what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So here's the journey. From Jerusalem, he says, from there all the way to I'm going to cover, he says, all the way around to Illyricum. That's how you say it. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So why does he say Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum? Because he makes this pit stop in Illyricum at this point that he writes this. And as we see even in, in the book of Acts, this is northwest of Macedonia, okay? I always remember it. It'd be reversed now as I point to the camera. Uh, never never eat soggy Wheaties. That's how I remember North, South, East, West. That's the only way I can remember. Never eat soggy Wheaties. Um, this is as far as he's gone, never eating soggy Wheaties. Northwest uh, of Macedonia on his third missionary journey, this is the furthest he has thus far taken the gospel, which is why he says Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Uh, to give you perspective, Illyricum would be like modern-day Croatia, um, Slo Slovenia, Bosnia. They're all located in that region of modern-day Illyricum. 
Uh, the ministry in Illyricum, I think what's so cool about it is Paul writes about it here in, in Romans 15. So in Acts 20, verse 1, it just said he set out for Macedonia. You have to then jump to Romans 15 to get the full story that Paul goes there. What I think is so cool about it, though, is that the ministry in Illyricum doesn't stop right there. It wasn't like, well, Paul went there one time. It's like, okay, well, we're done now. What's the next thing? Uh, do you see on the map here, I want you to be able to reference all these different places, kind of, it makes it easier on the map. You see on the map that it, you see the province of Dalmatia, Disney. Is this where you stole 101 Dalmatians from Paul's letter to the Roman church? Is this where you got it? Coella, is this where you got it? So you see here on the province, uh, on the map, the province of Dalmatia, that that is part of Illyricum. So you see Illyricum is like the full, the full picture of land here. Dalmatia is the lower half connected closest to Macedonia within Illyricum. Near the end of Paul's life, uh, he comes to Rome, right, in Acts 28. He's, in, he's under house arrest. He's in prison there. He's released. He actually does a bunch more ministry, travels around like a crazy man preaching the gospel. Gets arrested a second time, though. The second time he's imprisoned in Rome, he writes to Timothy, his son of the faith, and this is what he tells him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. He says, do your best to come to me quickly. Why? He says, for Demas, because he loved this world. He just calls Demas out by name. He's like, Demas, he abandoned me. He loves the world. He wants the world more than Jesus. I need you to come to me because Demas, it says, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. And look at what it mentions here. And Titus... We're going to talk more about him to Dalmatia. So you can see here that although it says Dalmatia in 2 Timothy and it says Illyricum in Romans 15, where is this all? Acts 20, traveling through Macedonia. He also makes a pit stop, never eat Sagiwides, northwest into, it says Illyricum in Romans, but in 2 Timothy, it says Dalmatia, all the same place. It references Timothy here. And I think that this is important to, to see because Although in Romans chapter 15, Paul starts the ministry in Illyricum, there must have been some major fruit that he saw because he sends the young Gentile, Titus, who Paul trains up in the faith. He actually, besides Timothy, there's only two that Paul calls his, his son in the faith, true sons in the faith, right? Spiritual sons. Titus, Timothy, it's the only two that he writes about them. So it's really cool here that Titus, his son in the faith, who later becomes an overseer of the church in Crete, he continues the ministry that Paul started in Illyricum. It's just referred to in 2 Timothy as Dalmatia. Oh, there's so much I could say about Titus. We don't got enough time. I, I wish I could do an entire extension just on Titus alone, because it is really quite fascinating, all that he did to help the gospel message go forth, because even though we haven't talked about him a lot until now, he's been around for quite some time. He's actually mentioned on Paul's first missionary journey. We just don't see it in Acts. You have to jump over to Galatians. Can we do that? Chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, he's like, I've been raised up for 14 years getting ready for this, to go on the first missionary journey, which we see in Acts 13. And then by Acts 15, what does it say? I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. What's that referring to? What we see in Acts 15, where they would go before the, the Jerusalem council there in Acts 15. Um, and what does he say? I took Titus along also. What? Titus has been there the whole time, y'all, in the book of Acts. And specifically, we know for sure Acts 15, which I, I talk a lot about that. If you watch the message, the disunity dilemma, 
or the extensions, bad burdens, and unrestricted restrictions when Paul and Barnabas, they stand before the Jerusalem council, Titus is there as well. You just have to go to Galatians to find it. But I talk about all that. You can see everything I'm going to reference that's not directly in this extension, but referencing to other messages or extensions. That'll just be in the description. But based upon details in 2 Corinthians, I got to keep hopping around some other books to give the full picture of, the, of, of what we're talking about in Acts. Do you realize we only covered Acts 20 verse 1 so far, right? Isn't this crazy that you got to hop around this much to even look at one verse in the book of Acts? It's so jam-packed. But if you go to then the details of 2 Corinthians, on Paul's third missionary journey, he wanted to meet Titus there in Troas, it, it illustrates. But after he leaves Ephesus, he actually isn't able to meet him there. They can't, Titus isn't there. They couldn't meet up. So it's not until finally he reaches Philippi that he runs into Titus again, finally. Um, Titus, he's been serving the church in Corinth at this point. And so finally they meet up together. Paul finds him in Philippi. He then hands him, can you imagine this? The second letter that he writes to the church at Corinth. We know it as 2 Corinthians. He hands that to Titus. Titus then brings that to the church there. And um, everything that we read in 2 Corinthians, the church unfolds from Titus and begins to read. So while, while Paul is traveling in Macedonia, he writes 2 Corinthians. So Philippi is in Macedonia, if you look on the map. Hands up 2 Corinthians. He brings it there to the church in Corinth. If you want to know more about Titus, some of the directions that Paul gave him, if you read like Galatians, 2 Corinthians, or the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, referred to as Titus in the New Testament, you can learn a lot more about all of that. Open the Bible. It's amazing. The Bible is boss. You ready? Verse two. That was just verse one. Let's keep going. Verse two. Uh, he traveled, Paul, through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stays three months. So Paul travels through Macedonia in the fall. He then arrives to Greece. He's there three months. So at that point now it becomes the winter time. He's in Greece. And I just want to clarify this. I like always as I'm either learning more, finding you know more studies that um, I'm no like amazing theologian or scholar, right? People like to vote their life to this. I've devoted a year to this and they can read it in the Greek and stuff. So I lean into people that really, uh, I, I know can be trusted in the faith and in their scholarly efforts. I just want to say this side note. I know in the extension of beautiful beginning, I reference that Paul wrote Romans while in Ephesus. So in Acts 19, while he's in Ephesus, he wrote Romans, but there's, there's a enough research out there and plenty of scholars that also believe that he actually writes Romans we just read verse two, that he comes to Greece. That would be for us understanding that Corinth is connected to there, that he wrote it during that time. So kind of a cool picture. It's Greece in the winter, and Paul is writing the book of Romans, the letter to the church there in Rome. This can make sense too, because he's there for three months. He had some time there. He, he's not on, on the travel, you know, traveling. It's winter time. I don't know, curl up next to a fire with a blankie and writing the book of Romans. Probably not, but let's just imagine it for a second. What's cool is this entire missionary journey though, it lasts three and a half to four years. Um, so that can be broken down in three years. He spent in Ephesus, we know that for sure because it's detailed very clear in Acts 19. Three months then in Greece, right? In Corinth there, he's writing the book of Romans potentially. And the rest of the time, nine months or so was spent between his other little pit stops of places he went and then just general travel from place to place. I don't think we think about this enough. 
but he traveled like a crazy person, like nonstop, like just going from place to place to place. Nine months of that potentially, maybe a little less if you add up the time he was spent places, is just spent traveling alone. By the time that he makes it to Jerusalem, think about this. The church in Ephesus had been established. Many churches in Macedonia had been established. Greece, Asia Minor, they're planted, they're, they're flourishing. And even the church in Rome at this point, it's up and running. So Paul would have made his way to Jerusalem much sooner. Uh, we know that. Scripture says he's ready to go. But isn't it interesting how God always uses something negative to bring something very beautiful and positive to the picture? That God uses persecution, something negative, another attack on Paul. He uses it to make sure that although I love that, that message, I think it's called what? Planted yet persecuted, but persecuted, something like that. I don't know. It's in the description. You can see it. This idea of although we're being persecuted, there's a planting that's still taking place. So although Paul is taking some heat here, God actually uses it to deepen the roots of the church. And what does he do? Look at verse three. It says, because some Jews had plotted against him um, just as he was about to sail to Syria, that means Jerusalem, he decided to go back through Macedonia. Devil doesn't get this. Devil thinks that he can bring an attack to get us from going to Jerusalem. Tricks on you, devil. God planned all along to strengthen the churches again in Macedonia. What happened? He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, that's in Macedonia, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, that's in Macedonia, Gaius from Derby, that's in Asia Minor, Timothy also, Timothy was from Lystra, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of um, Asia. Uh, sorry, Gaius from Derby, that's in Galatia. But Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia, most likely, at least we know, Trophimus is from Ephesus because it refers to him. If you've, uh, I talked about that in our extension, refers to him as the Ephesian. And so I think what's cool is not only he picks up these guys along the way that he trained up and they followed him, but so cool. Finally, Timothy is back with him, his true son, the faith. He's back with them, and, and here's how we know that finally they're back together. In Acts 19, verse 22, it says that he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and, Aristar, um, and, and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So he's there in, in Ephesus, Asia Minor, but he sends ahead of him Timothy, Timothy and Erastus in Macedonia. Finally, Paul's coming back through Macedonia, and they're together again. It's amazing. It's like... It's like, uh, well, not this at all, but I just had the picture in my mind of like when a soldier's off at war and you see those like really heart gripping videos of like when their children see them for the first time or something. I don't know. That's just what I thought of. They're finally back together, ready to kick it, do some ministry because Paul came back through Macedonia. Now, I know I keep like jumping out of Acts 20, but it's all the pieces that we need to build it. So can I jump ahead to Acts 24? I think it's actually going to help us here. Jump ahead. Paul is on trial in Caesarea. He's standing before Governor Felix, and he's, he's clarifying as he's making his case, right? Some really important details of what else him and his travel companions were up to in Acts 20. So we'll jump ahead, and it's going to bring us back. Isn't this cool? Acts 24, verse 17, this is what he says to Felix. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem. I've been gone from Jerusalem for a while. Well, how long? Hmm, I don't know, maybe three and a half, four years on a third missionary journey. That's what he means. And what do you do when he comes to Jerusalem? I came to Jerusalem to bring my people, my people, mi gente, gifts for the poor and to present offerings. What does this mean? 
Acts 20, where we are now discussing this, part of that mission and that journey was to go to churches in Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, and to collect funds to bring it back to the church in Jerusalem. They weren't just preaching. They weren't just, you know, seeing the, the lost one for Jesus or strengthening the churches. They were collecting money. So when they came to Jerusalem, as we know happened in Acts 21, journey to Jerusalem. I talk about that. Uh, by Acts 24, though, the brother already, you know, in trouble and standing before Felix because he just couldn't keep his mouth shut. Jesus must be known. But he brings money here to the church in Jerusalem. Paul also gives us a lot of insight into this thought right here with the letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. Remember the one that Titus delivers for him? Look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 7. I promise. We're about to go to Acts 20. We're going to do it right after this. Look at this, though. Verse 1. And now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. So there we go. He, he's like on the journey ministering to the Macedonian churches, but he's writing to those in Greece at Corinth. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Isn't it amazing that you can be poor and still be rich? For I testify that they gave as much as they were able. Makes me think of the woman that gave the two mites that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, right? And even beyond their ability, whoa, they stretch. That's, that's faith. It gives you even more than you possess currently. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege, that's the word, of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. What's the service? Giving financially to the needs of those in Jerusalem as Paul's collecting these finances. You know, I've heard this my whole life and I believe this so strong. You cannot outgive God. It's truth. You cannot outgive God. What does that even mean? It means you can never give enough to even begin to amount to what he's given us. Number one. Number two, you can never outgive in a way of your generosity, God will always stretch it and he will multiply it and use it greater than you can imagine. You can never give beyond. How would I say this? I would say this in a, maybe in a matter of saying that faith has no limits. The greatest your faith can be. What is What does he say? He said, think it, dream it, give it. I'm going to do exceedingly immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. So whatever you give, it cannot outgive what God's about to give on top of what you just gave, if that makes sense. I think what's cool about this is he writes, though, to the church here in Corinth, is he uses the churches in Macedonia as examples. They're poor, yet they're rich. He said that the church in Macedonia, they were so generous in the offerings that they collected for the church in Jerusalem, and he uses their lives as examples, that they gave beyond their means, it says here, that they didn't actually have it, but they pulled their money together. They did whatever they could and they gave it because they believed that there were those that were in greater need than themselves. And they weren't so selfish to look in the mirror to their own needs and what their wants were, but they were looking past the mirror out the window to what the needs of those beyond them were. I think it's so easy to just hoard for ourselves and contain simply what we want and our desires are now. You know, in our generation now, it's very simple to find a link on Amazon and get it or put on some app like gift fold. These are all the things I want. I don't even think it's wrong if people are going to be getting you gifts to clarify maybe what your need is. 
to say, you know, I actually need this if you're going to get me something. But I think it's wrong that we live in this space that it's all about what we want rather than about what the people around us actually need. And I'm not saying this as a guilt trip, but I think that I'm very convicted by the church here, the churches in Macedonia that make up the capital C church, that it says that they were doing it with overwhelming joy despite extreme poverty. So Paul uses them as an example, and he writes the church in Corinth. He actually continues. They exceeded our expectations, he says. He's like, let me just keep showing you what you can become. Corinthian church, this is who I'm calling you out to become. Look at them. They gave themselves first um, all of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, there he is again, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace, grace, and very important word, on your part. But since you excel in everything, look at this, you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in, and in the love we have kindled in you, look at this, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. What is it? What is giving? Grace. Giving, just like any act of God, such as faith, love, anything like that, giving only comes through grace. You must have a grace in order to be a giver. Giving and generosity, they are privilege and they are, they are acts that we can do with joy, but it only comes when God graces you so you can excel in it. No one on their own, even people that are far from God, they don't just say, you know what? I want to be generous. I want to be a cheerful giver. I want to give back to the community. Nobody does that. Even, even the best of people that we'd say on earth that aren't followers of Jesus, you don't do it unless there's something intrinsically built inside of you that is God. That's why even scripture says that the law is inscribed upon our hearts. Even those that are far from God have the law built inside of them. It's a grace, I believe, for us, believers in Jesus through the Holy Spirit that gives us a grace to be givers, grace to not be selfish, grace to look beyond ourselves because, man, where would we be without Jesus? Okay, it's good stuff. Let's get back to Acts though. You ready? Verse five. These men went on board, all the ones I listed, right? Tichikis, Trophimus, all them. Went on board and waited for us. I'll get to that. Us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. So what happened there? That we sailed from Philippi. What happened while they were there? The festival of unleavened bread. What is that? It's a seven-day observance to remember God's deliverance of the Jewish people. So according to verse 6 that we just read, Paul and his crew would have stayed in Philippi spending time. Think about this with Lydia. Remember Lydia in Acts 16 or her household? Also, think about the Philippian uh, jailer. Remember the one that was going to kill himself? Paul and Silas are singing at midnight. The chains break out. He's about to kill himself. No, don't kill yourself. He goes, what must I do to be saved? Goes to his house. He and his whole household are baptized. They're saved. They come to know Jesus. Think about this. They're back there again in Philippi with Lydia, with the Philippian jailer and his family, the rest of the church. I'm going to guess based on the math of this, around 10 to 12 days. We don't know for sure, but around 10 to 12 days. Why? I say 10 to 12 days because if seven days are devoted to this festival 
of unleavened bread. And then it says five more days. That's what verse six says. Then there was five more days. We could probably split that between time fellowshipping and then probably the travel getting to Troas. So somewhere in between 10 to 12 days before they set off to sea to get to Troas. You notice I said here though, the verse says they waited for us at Troas. This is a shift in language. We haven't seen this since Acts 16. Why? Because Luke ain't been with Paul since Acts 16. Isn't this so awesome? He starts using now, again in his writing, the us and we language, starting at verse five and six. This is the first time that Luke is back with Paul since Acts 16. Finally, they're back together again. The boys are back. The boys are back. Timothy, Luke, Paul, they about to get it. They back together. So Paul, what he did is he set Luke up in Philippi to continue developing the church and maybe even the surrounding area, right? Lydia and the Philippian jailer is like, hey, we got to keep going. I'm going to keep you here though. And you're going to help me build what's happening here. And then we know that Paul picks him up in Philippi because verse five indicates that he was already with Paul before they meet the rest of them in Troas. So he picks him up in Philippi. They go meet the rest of the boys there in Troas. And uh, he's not described, though, between 16 and, yeah, 16, 17, 18, 19. He's not described as being there. Why? There is no us or we language at all written. And remember, Luke never describes his name ever, never puts it. He's a very humble man, never puts it in the book of Acts. We know he writes it because we connect as, as you, you can go watch uh, uh, the, the extension. I think it's called The Dangerous Dozen. They'll put it in the description specifically. How do you know that Luke wrote it? The dangerous, between that, The Dangerous Dozen and Supply and Demand. Those, those two on Acts 1. The name Theophilus is how we connect the book of Luke and the book of Acts. That's the only way that we would know. Besides that, it's just us and we language. So finally, we know based upon that description that he comes and he meets up Paul, his companions, and they all come now to Troas together. Remember Troas, Acts 16? That's where they originally picked up Luke for the first time in Acts 16. At this point now, it's early springtime, and they're there, the Bible says, Seven days, so about a week. And man, some interesting stuff goes down in Troas. Let me tell you, verse seven. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he's like, hey, we can be out of here, whatever. You know what he does? He kept on talking, jabber John. The Bible says, until midnight. Now, I'm gonna break down my affinity. I got love right now for Paul's long-windedness. Us long-winded brothers, we stick together. I'm going to do that in a second. But first, you notice two words, only two words that they unpack so much detail. What does it say? That we came together to what? Two words, break bread. Those two words right there pack a punch. What does that mean? We came together to break bread. Holy Spirit shows up. Acts chapter 2, tongues of fire, speaking in tongues, church is built, 3,000 added to the number that day. And what does it say they focused on? It says Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves, four things, to the apostles' teaching. One, to fellowship. Two, here it is. Three, breaking bread. To the breaking of bread. And four, to prayer. There it is. From Acts 2 till now and even to this day, four things we're only supposed to devote ourselves to. And one of them is to break bread. Bread. This idea of breaking bread, it originated, obviously, at the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, right? It continues, though, 
into the book of Acts in a really special way. This was bigger than just the simple concept that we would know today as communion, right? We observe that today. It's the bread or the cracker, the wafer, whatever you got. It's the juice. Some use wine, not myself. We just use some good old-fashioned grape juice. It's good. And then I don't have to wonder, like, buzzed afterwards or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, buzz from home alone or whatever it is. It's like it's like just some good old-fashioned grape juice. We're good to go. But I ain't judging. I'm just saying. Everybody uses different stuff. That's just what I think is best. A moment like this, though, that we're reading about in Acts 20 and in, in, in Troas, it was bigger than just a simple communion time. It was usually held, as we can see here, not many believers had it, but it was, this would have been in a big house, gathering a lot of the believers together in one big house. And it says that they're breaking bread. This would have been a time of celebration. It would have been like a time of feasting together. Since most Christians were very poor, there was always a shortage of food for the believers because they're sacrificing. They're giving of their life and their, 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 their resources, everything they have for other people to help the poor, things like that. So then they, them, themselves, uh, they themselves are poor, right? They're persecuted, they're poor. So because of that, man, this was a time to look forward to. Everybody bringing a dish to pass. They're going to have a big feast together. They looked forward to this. They'd come together, usually uh, the evening of a Saturday, maybe a Sunday. You know what they called it? They called it the love feast. They come together for the love feast. And although the heart of the love feast, oh yeah, isn't this the case? We spirit-filled we just love the grace of Jesus and the truth of his word, yet we can't keep ourselves straight as humans and we always messing it up. Although the love feasts were so powerful, Paul had to correct them. He wrote to the church at Corinth and he had to correct them. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. He, what is he saying? I got problems with y'all. For your meetings, this is referring to the love feasts, they do more harm than good. So what Christians were doing is they started so great with these love feasts, but they started throwing private dinners rather than keeping them public with the whole church. They started making them private little sectors separated from one another. And so two things were happening. The first thing that was really dumb is people were going hungry. Like people in the church were literally not getting fed because they were throwing their little exclusive little coffee clutches that they'd call them, like little parties over here. But more than that, they were so about themselves that as they were using wine at that time, we said, well, I just stay away from it now. To throw their love feast, you know what's happened? They were getting hammered drunk. They get together. They starting off with the Lord's Supper, having communion, breaking bread. Next thing you know, they getting hammered. They are just completely getting old school would be crunk is what they used to say. Right? They getting drunk. Like they starting off having church. Now I ain't talking about getting drunk in the spirit. I'm talking about getting drunk in the spirits, plural. There's a reason they call it spirits because I think there's a lot of spirits connected to alcohol, like demonic spirits. They call it spirits for a reason. We don't, we don't deal in spirits. We deal in the spirit, one spirit. You know what happened though? When they start getting drunk, now all types of, all types of immorality is happening. A lot of sexual morality. Bible talks about orgies, a lot of crazy stuff taking place. This is the people of God starting off together in his presence, praising him. Next thing you know, an orgy's breaking out. Wow, we have gone down a slippery slope. This is a mudslide. This happened real quick because it's, you know, you get a mudslide dirty and then slippery slope. So it's rough. So love feasts went rough and bad, sour, real quick. 
So Paul has to clarify again. Okay, y'all getting this sick and twisted here. We getting this messed up. Listen, y'all used to be like this. We ain't like this anymore. We ain't gonna act like this. We're the people of God now. We're full of the Spirit. So he has to re-clarify. What is the purpose? Why do we observe? Why do we observe the the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper that Jesus taught us? So he continues, same chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, look at verse 23. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, this is the, the last supper, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. He's reminding them why we do all this, right? Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Meaning I died in my flesh. I died in myself because we're remembering what the Lord did. So we have to do what he did. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. He's like, listen, y'all got it screwed up in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So he's rerouting them. He's saying, listen, we, we can't do this wrong anymore. We got to get this right. Man, now I want to do a whole extension on just breaking bread, just on the Eucharist, just on communion, just on the Lord's Supper, just on love feast. It'd be good. Uh, needless to say, if you haven't caught it by now, by the way that Paul is writing to the Corinthians here, writing to this church in 1 Corinthians, love feast, Oh yeah, they were discontinued. They didn't do them anymore. Instead, they then took today the Eucharist, right? We would know it as communion. They moved forward with that. You know what they started by? Very simple fix. Let's not do it at night anymore because uh, it's the devil's playground. Let's move it to the morning. So they, that's what they did. They moved it all to the morning and removed it away from the evening and they went forward. This is what's taking place in Troas. To give you perspective, this is what Paul's come to. Not all the dirty, dirty. He was there. They wouldn't have done that when Paul was there. But that's what they're doing here in Troas. And because he knew that he was leaving, what does it say? He just keeps on talking till midnight. Look at all the different details that Luke gives. And he gives what we'd call foreshadowing of what's going to take place. So cool. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. So what is it indicating? It's dark. I don't know about you, but when it's dark, it's just me. I know some people are like this, but I turn all the lights on to stay awake. Some people don't like that. They don't like it bright. It hurts their eyes, whatever. But once it gets dim, I get tired. Imagine a dark space with a bunch of lamps, very dim, and they're all just trying to stay alive as Paul keeps just jabber jawing on. That's an indicator. It's foreshadowing. We got to catch it. Seated in a window, there was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on. And on. If you ain't seeing this as foreshadowing about, about what to take place, you ain't reading this like into this enough. Before you even get to the next sentence, you didn't know something's about to happen. Seated in a window, sinking into a deep sleep. Not good. It should be like it should be like a like a radar, a, a alarm, an alert, something. Uh, 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 something about to happen to this boy. What happens? When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground. From the third story. Wow, that's a big house. I just took that in right now. That's a big house. Colonial. But man, they rolling deep, this Christian family. Falls from the third story. What's happened? And the dude is picked 
up dead. Can you imagine? You're sitting around together, feasting together, worshiping together, praying together. You're hearing the word preached together, and somebody just falls asleep, and then they fall dead in the middle of your church gathering. That's what just took place right now. Now, listen, I tell my church, because I'm long-winded, you shouldn't be complaining. Listen, ain't nobody fell dead in my preaching yet, so there should be no complaining. Like, people falling dead, not just, like, dead asleep, dead, dead from Paul's preaching. Ain't nobody falling asleep dead, so don't be complaining yet. Let's go verse 10. Paul went down, so he's like, shoot, the dude's dead. Threw himself on the young man, put his arms, arms around him. You seeing this? Paul is doing a WWE body slam on this brother right now. He's straight body slamming this kid. Throw, the Bible says throws his body on him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. No, Paul. He was dead. He didn't even go, hey, he was dead. He's alive now. Body slam. He's all good now. Like he got the Holy Spirit WWE slam right now. It's like he goes, don't be alarmed. He's like two thumbs up. He's good. He ain't dead anymore. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. Okay, let's get this for a second. They were just breaking bread and Paul was long-winded preaching. The dude dies from it. Resurrects the boy if you didn't catch it. What does it say? It says they go back upstairs and what do they do? They break bread and keep eating, doing exactly what they were doing. And then, is that it? No. After talking until day... The dude just died from your talking, Paul. What does he do? Resurrects him. They go back up and they do exactly what they just did before. They keep eating and Paul keeps talking. Now, if you didn't catch this, this wasn't just talking for a few minutes. He wasn't just preaching for a few minutes. Verse 7 sets up, when did Eutychus die? His death is around midnight, it tells us in verse 7. What did we just catch now? After talking until daylight, then Paul leaves. Do you realize he talks for like another five hours or more? I'm going like on the short end of things. It's five hours, five more hours. Paul keeps preaching. Now, listen, I know if you watch these extensions, they long, but they're still under an hour thus far. We'll see what this one is when I finish here. But Paul keeps preaching. They just pulled an all-nighter in the presence. They just pulled an all-nighter. Like, listen, I've pulled all-nighters for tests. I've pulled all-nighters for projects. I've pulled all-nighters for old-school youth lock-ins back in the day. But they just pulled an all-nighter in the presence of God. Catch this, though. It doesn't say that they stayed up all night and then the next day they slept until one in the afternoon. They need to catch up on their sleep. I don't think there's anything wrong with purposefully staying up. There's a big difference, though, between gaming all night. I'm going to go there just for a second. Gaming all night and then sleeping in all day. Staying up and watching movies all night, sleeping in all day. I get it. I, I do well in the night. At the time we're recording this, it's late at night right now. I'm getting it. We're just going. The team's here. We're we making it happen. But my... My point is, let's call, it, let's call a spade a spade. There's a difference between staying up all night doing what you want to do. I'll use gaming as an example. And then sleeping all day versus staying up all night on mission with intention, with hunger and thirst for the things of God, for his presence. Call it what it is. Now, is there a problem up here and there? Some of you stay up and homies hanging out. And man, we got stuff like 
with, with We Are One, we have like a Discord and they game together and they, and you know what they do? They get in the Discord and they talk about the book of Acts together in Discord. That's what I'm talking about. Gaming, the book of Acts. I don't know if it gets any better than that possibly for some people. But there's a big difference between the purposefulness of how we're using our time late into the night or the purposelessness of staying up and then wasting the day away in laziness and sleeping. There's a need, there's a difference between a need to sleep in because you got to pay off a sleep debt because you've been grinding like nobody's business or you sick or whatever it is versus laziness and how we're using our time. What does it say? It says that Paul preaches until daylight and then he leaves. What does he do? He doesn't go to sleep. He moves on to the next place that needs Jesus. And I think we need to measure our intentionality here. Even the church measure the intentionality here of them, what they're doing. Because after Paul leaves, I love after Paul leaves. Luke doesn't just leave with Paul. Oh, so cool. Verse 12, he stays looking at the church still. This last detail is so cool looking at the church here in Troas. Verse 12, the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Luke didn't, I guess, need to put that there but it's intentional. We needed to hear it. We need to remember that we serve a God that resurrects dead things, dead people, the dead. That at one point, Eutychus, we cannot just look past this like it's not a big deal. Eutychus goes home alive. You know what this reminds me of? This same moment with Eutychus, it reminds me of an instance in the Gospels. Very similar time frame even to this. Paul, he comes to Troas. What does it say? Seven days. Like we know as we pin it, like follow what the Bible says here, it's around seven days before Passover. You know what it says in John 12? John 12, 1 to 2, it indicates, what does it say? Six days before the Passover. So it's almost the same here. Paul in Troas, seven days. Jesus here in Bethany, we're going to get to it, six days before Passover. So six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Oh, so cool. Whom Jesus, what do you do? Raised from the dead. You can find the resurrection account of Lazarus in John 11. It's extraordinary. Jesus, shortest verse in all the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Two words that can just bring life to you. Jesus he cried. He loved people. He, he had a friend named Lazarus who had passed away. Chapter 11, Lazarus is dead. Chapter 12, so cool. Just like Eutychus, he's alive. What does it say? Continues, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha, oh, Martha always was doing this. Martha served. Look at the description. While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. He's got his feet kicked up. He's chilling. Same description here. Acts 20, verse 12. The people took the young man home alive. You look at John 12. Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. What? Not dead anymore. That was chapter 11. Chapter 12, he's alive. It's a pretty cool thought. You know, I think for us, I believe in resurrection physically today. I know it still happens. But I also think there, even in a spiritual sense, there's just so many things in our lives that need to be resurrected. For some of us, it could be just because of weariness of life right now. 
And we're there. We want to be in the moment. We're there. We're sitting in the window. We leaning in. We listening. And, and just life has just got us. We just fall asleep. We fall in our windows. And just life has us a little dead right now. Others of you in different ways. It could just be, it could be your marriage. It could be um, your work. It could be, uh, let's just say even simply following Jesus for a long period of time is so taxing. It takes, a, it takes a toll on your body, mind, and spirit. It takes everything that the word has to offer and the spirit has to offer to truly live a set apart, holy life for Jesus. And some of you have allowed your walk with God just to become even a little bit dead. I just want to remind you today that if you'd call right now in the name of Jesus, if you'd invite the Holy Spirit, I just, remind you, I just want to remind you it doesn't have to be that way. I've served Jesus for the time of this recording, 31 years of my life. I was four years old when I gave my life to him. Yeah, I had a lot of highs and lows since then, but I'm still here. I hope that maybe one day, if this video is still in existence somehow, most likely I'll be like preaching from a hologram or something in the coming years, I don't know. But I hope many, many years from now I can look back and I can be able to say I'm still alive and serving Jesus. I allowed myself to die in the things of God, die in my calling, die in the faith. But that I would be able to say, another 31 years from now. Man, I am more alive for Jesus than ever before. Maybe somebody used to be reminded today that although there's some things in front of you right now that either you're falling asleep to and falling out windows to, or simply like Lazarus that just received, a, got some sort of disease of that time and he caused him to die. Whatever it is that you are dead to, I just wanna remind you that you serve a God that resurrects dead things and dead people. What is, it, what is it that you've allowed to die? What dream that God gave you, you've given up on and you've allowed to die? What is it in your marriage? You know, I've, been, I've been married at the time of this recording nine years, keeping marriage alive and fresh for Jesus. What is it that we've allowed to die? Some of you in marriage or some of you in your calling, God spoke something to you and Either you've doubted it or, um, I don't know, you, you went about it for a while and it just got difficult and you gave up on it or you never started it in the first place and you just got busy doing other things. Listen, if God called you to something, you don't have time to waste doing things he didn't call you to. He's coming back for people that are living out and, and breathing for and giving themselves to what he asked of them, not what he didn't. We don't have time to do things he didn't ask us to do. So I just speak over somebody right now. Wake up, O sleeper. As Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Listen, I'm not there to, double, to WWE slam you right now, so I'll just speak it in faith. A word spoken in faith is very powerful. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. God's not done with you. He resurrects things that appear to be done. But when he said, it is finished, he wasn't saying, I've given up. 
he said it is finished so that once he went in the tomb and it looked as though it was finished and he wasn't coming back, that word spoken in faith would even be able to re be spoken to through the power of the Holy Spirit to that dead body to resurrect and say, because you said it is finished, you ain't finished. You're not finished. You're not done. He's not done with you yet. If you're living and if you're breathing, then it's not possible to be dead. Don't let anything die. Die to yourself, but never to your calling. Die to yourself, but never to the things of God. Rise. Live. It's a word, probably for me, but for somebody else. So I just speak in faith over every person that's watching or listening to this. I just say, come alive right now. Come alive right now. I just speak resurrection to dreams, visions. I speak resurrection to marriages. I speak resurrection, Lord, to the power of just the family unit coming together. I speak resurrection, Lord, to people walking in the fullness of their calling with their gifts and, and developing themselves and giving themselves under the ministry of God. I speak resurrection and grace even to people just getting a hold of vision with their finances to leverage it for the glory of God. God, I speak res resurrection to mothers that don't feel they're enough, that single people that think they have to be married, that married people that wish they were single. I speak a fresh life, faith, to the hearts of anybody that would receive it right now. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. I just speak now in faith in advance like Paul did over Eutychus. Don't worry, don't be alarmed. He's alive. I just speak over somebody right now. Don't, I'm not even alarmed. She's alive. You're alive. Jesus, we just commit to you that if you're a resurrected Jesus, then we want to be like you. We're going to be a resurrected people. I say this in the awesome and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love you all.